Hi, welcome to Bookie. To unlock more world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. You will get 7 days free trail with more features. Today we'll unlock the book on ugliness. What is ugliness? Is ugliness merely the opposite of beauty? Between Eastern and Western aesthetics, there are many commonalities. For example, something with harmonious proportions would be considered beautiful by both. Both are also somewhat narcissistic. What do we mean by that? Well, for instance a god, a being whose image is regarded as supreme and perfect, is typically depicted in the form of a human being in both Eastern and Western cultures. And when imagining an alien, many of us picture it as having eyes and hands similar to us humans, the most intelligent creatures on earth. If that which is most harmonious with the human form is regarded as beauty, otherwise it is ugly, then most of us must admit we don't find E.T. or the Avatar aliens to be beautiful. To put it more clearly, if what Greek philosophers and Ophanes said was true that, if cattle and horses and lions had hands, or could paint with their hands and create works such as men do, horses like horses and cattle like cattle also would depict the god's shapes, and make their bodies of such a sort as the form they themselves have. We wouldn't think gods with ox or horse heads were beautiful in the strictest sense. Human beauty has human form and human needs at its core. It would be an oversimplification if we saw ugliness only as the opposite of beauty when we examine the history of ugliness. Though Eastern and Western gods are more or less human-like, Eastern gods look more like Easterners, and Western gods look more like Westerners. In the eyes of the Easterners, the curly hair and high noses of Western gods don't seem inviting. While for Westerners, Eastern gods may seem lazy, with their loose robes and big bellies. Obviously, the concepts of beauty and ugliness not only differ between cultures, but also change over time. In the past, an African ritual mask might have seemed scary and ugly for a Westerner, but for artists like Picasso, it could be deconstructed into another kind of beauty. A medieval philosopher would think of the dimensions and the form of a Gothic cathedral as unparalleled in beauty. Yet in the Renaissance, when compared to a 16th-century temple built to the golden ratio, its proportions might have seemed barbarous. What are the categories of ugliness? The author of the book, Eco, argues that one should differentiate between three types of ugliness. First, ugliness in itself, such as waste and decomposing corpses. Second, formal ugliness, which refers to the lack of equilibrium in the organic relationship between the parts of a whole. And third, the artistic portrayal of ugliness, which means any form of ugliness can be redeemed by a faithful, effective rendering by an artist. Moving through the ages, drawing on a spectacular collection of sources befitting its polymath author, on ugliness overturns traditional notions of beauty and ugliness, to present a surprising history of the aesthetics of ugliness. As an encyclopedic scholar, Eco provides a rich material of visual arts and literary works, and presents to us the aesthetics of ugliness through the classical period, the Middle Ages, Renaissance, Romanticism and the modern times. As Eco said himself, ugliness is more interesting than beauty. Beauty is frequently boring. Up next, we'll tell you the history of Umberto Eco's Western aesthetics of ugliness in chronological order. Part 1, Ugliness in the Classical Age 
Part 2, Ugliness in the Middle Ages. Part 3, Ugliness from the Renaissance to Romanticism. Part 4, Ugliness in Modern Times. As Polish aesthetician Tatarkiewicz pointed out, Greek aesthetics was first embodied in Greek art. The Greek system was about rules and forms. Ancient Greek art held that perfection was represented in natural forms, and that the proportions of organisms were the most harmonious proportions of all. Based on this concept of beauty, those that failed to reflect such proportions were ugly. Ugliness, however, should not be simply defined as the opposite of beauty. Beauty is known to the ancients, was not just about formal beauty that pleases, but also included spiritual beauty. The Greek ideal of perfection included the beauty of the body, and the virtue of the mind. In other words, being both beautiful and virtuous, is what makes a gentleman, as later generations would name it. From this point of view, ugliness can be categorized into physical ugliness and moral ugliness. The Greek culture generated a large number of literary works about the relationship between physical ugliness and moral ugliness. Thersites, known as the Carping Critic in Homer's Iliad, was a typical character that combined physical ugliness and moral ugliness. He had a hunchback, a lame foot, sparse hair, and slant eyes. He also liked to speak badly about other people. For example, he often condemned Agamemnon, the commander of the Greek army for false reasons, and he made abusive remarks to other leaders as well. Everyone hated him. By contrast, Helen of Troy, described as the most beautiful woman in the world, represented only moral ugliness. As Queen of Sparta, Helen ran away with Prince Paris of Troy, which resulted in the Trojan War. Such a character surely could not be a moral example. On the other hand, Aesop from the Aesop Romance was a very ugly man. However, he had a beautiful soul and was very intelligent, which is why he was acclaimed as the great benefactor of humanity. Socrates is another excellent example of inner beauty. In Plato's Symposium, the handsome Alcibiades likened Socrates to Marsyas, an ugly satyr. Likewise, in Aristophanes' play The Clouds, Socrates is sarcastically depicted. Clearly, Socrates didn't look good, but people nonetheless admired him. People worship beauty, but they worship intelligence more. As Alcibiades' famous line puts it, Socrates looks very much like those statues of Silenus. They have images of the gods inside them. This shows that, though ancient Greece highly valued formal beauty, another criterion of beauty could go beyond objective proportions, which is what we can clearly see. Hidden inside, spiritual beauty was more valuable than physical beauty. Moreover, the ancient Greek criteria of beauty and ugliness were formed by the gods. The gods not only had the same form as humans, but also the same nature. They had perfect bodies, yet at the same time they could do ugly things. Zeus, the ruler of all gods, was promiscuous. Dionysus, the god of wine, was irritable and cruel. Athena envied Medusa's beauty, and changed her into a monster of unnatural forms, with snake-like hair and an evil heart. Whoever looked into her eyes would be turned into a stone. There are many other scary creatures like this in Greek mythology and literature, like the sirens in Homer's stories, the three-headed dog Cerberus described by Virgil, that guards the gates of the underworld, or the Sphinx, with the head of a human and the body of a lion, as well as the Minotaur, with the head of a bull and the body of a man. In Greek mythology, 
cruel stories abound. Take the story of Medea for example. To be with her lover Jason, Princess Medea killed her brother, and helped Jason steal her father's most valuable treasure, the Golden Fleece. Not long after, however, Jason betrayed her and decided to marry Princess Glossy, the daughter of King Creon. Upon being expelled from her kingdom and facing Jason's betrayal, Medea was furious. She poisoned Glossy, and killed her two sons with Jason to take revenge on her disloyal husband. Let's look at another example from the Greek play Agamemnon, in which Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, sacrificed his own daughter to the goddess Artemis, without any hesitation to pray for a victory in war before he marched toward Troy. Agamemnon's wife came to hate him for this, and so she conspired with her lover and murdered Agamemnon. As these stories show, the Greek world was not simply dominated by beauty. Besides the idealized forms of the white marble sculptures of Aphrodite or Apollo we see in museums today, there were also strains of physical and moral ugliness in the classical imagination. In Greek mythology, ugliness and evil was indispensable material for artistic works. As in the wild myths we just discussed, Greek culture didn't hold that the world was necessarily wholly beautiful. Plato also maintained that sensible reality was merely a poor imitation of the perfection of the world of ideas. Ugly and seedy things like stains, mud and unattractive hair could not exist in that idealized world, because they would be an absolute nothing. Therefore, the very existence of the absolute nothing signified that ugliness was the imperfect side of our material world. With the arrival of the Christian era, such a relationship was reversed in certain ways. For a Christian, the world was created by a perfect God, so everything created by God, the Creator must be complete and beautiful. Given this, shouldn't the whole universe be beautiful? If it is, why does ugliness exist in the world? It seems to be contradictory to the idea of a perfect world. In the Middle Ages, St. Augustine responded to this question with some famous arguments. He held that ugliness is not the nature of beings, but is generated by a distortion of the mind. He reasoned that ugliness is not real, and that ugliness and evil in themselves could not exist, because they would be an absolute nothing. What does that mean? To put it simply, God, as the Creator, is the one and only reality. He is good and beautiful, and evil and ugliness do not exist on the divine plane. They are not included in God's plan of the earth's creation, so evil is only the loss of goodness, and ugliness the loss of beauty. They are deviations from God generated by men's rotten minds. This view is quite similar to Neoplatonism. To state it more explicitly, the more things exist according to proper measure, form, and order, the more they are undoubtedly good. And the less they are in accord with this measure, form, and order, the worse they are. Then why is such a view contrary to Greek culture? Let's continue our analysis. According to the medieval point of view represented by Augustine, when we say something is ugly, we are actually saying that its original beauty is lost, corrupted, or diminished. There was a positive value before corruption set in. If the corruption is complete, a thing would cease to exist. Therefore, there must be beauty to some extent within an ugly thing. Within the framework of the overall beauty of the universe, ugliness is merely beauty of a lower level. Like in Aesop's fables, a mother monkey holding its baby would think the baby monkey is the most beautiful of all, 
But humans are more beautiful than monkeys, and gods are more beautiful than humans. This order of beauty always exists. Based on this logic, deformity and evil also have their value, like light and shadow, each one indispensable in nature. Just as light and shadow complement each other, the harmony of the whole is revealed. Insofar as sin can be punished, order can be re-established. The damned in hell therefore are the best examples of the law of harmony. The horror of hell and the devil exists just to show the beauty and goodness of heaven and God better. As demonstrated, the medieval belief that anything in the universe is beautiful redeems ugliness and evil to some extent. Without doubt, this redemption is highly significant for Christianity. To acclaim Christ's divinity, the portrayal of the martyr's sufferings became the most popular cultural theme during the Middle Ages. And only when art has to deal with the passion of Christ, can we realize what Hegel pointed out in his Aesthetics, that you cannot use the forms of Greek beauty to portray Christ scourged, crowned with thorns, dying on the cross. In the early Middle Ages, however, Christian art had its own restrictions, and people could only depict the Good Shepherd in highly idealized images. This was the case because once the Passion of Christ was depicted, heretics would use his sufferings to affirm his human nature and deny his divinity. It was only after the previously mentioned explanation when people started to portray Christ's sufferings to better represent his glory. Through art, the spirit attains its truth and its heaven. This was why Hegel argued that only new forms could capture the meaning of the suffering, divine form of Jesus on the cross. The highest image of medieval art would have been taken as an ugly abomination in the classical world that came before. It was one thing to redeem the ugly fate of Jesus, the hero of the Christian story, but those who persecuted Christ ultimately began to be portrayed as well. As Hegel writes in his Aesthetics, the enemies of Christ are presented to us as inwardly evil, because they place themselves in opposition to God. In connection with all these, there enters here as a necessary feature what is unbeautiful in comparison with the beauty of Greek art. In this field the North German masters in particular distinguished themselves, when in scenes from the Passion, they highlighted with great energy the coarseness of the undisciplined soldiery, the wickedness of their mockery, and the barbarousness of the hatred of Christ during his Passion and death. For Greek artists, the gods were models of the utmost beauty so they created numerous statues of the Olympian gods. Compared to the perfect gods of ancient Greece, the passion of Christ emphasized in the Middle Ages was more ugly, yet it created a new symbolic image of beauty. In the process of Christ's death and resurrection, his divinity and humanity merge into one. Later, artworks in the Middle Ages pushed the portrayal of ugliness to its extreme, with themes like death, hell, and the devil becoming common. Yet the Bible's Book of Revelations was not the first literary work to introduce the concept of hell to the Christian world. Long before, many religions had conceived of a place, known as the underworld, where ghosts wander about. At first, the so-called hell was not yet purgatory, with no mention of horrible punishments and tortures. However, as Christianity emphasized the conflicts between punishment and sins, and between the spirit and the flesh, hell was needed to punish the sinful, and thus became a place of horror. Take Dante's Divine Comedy for example. It described in detail each section of hell and its tortures. Correspondingly, the image of Satan changed from an angel to the devil, 
the personification of darkness and ugliness. Also, the devil and those who were possessed by the devil were all portrayed as horrible and ferocious. All such depictions were aimed to contrast with the beauty of heaven. The more horrible hell and the devil were, the more pious the believers would be, as they believed that their belief could save them from the destiny of falling into hell after death. Today we are just sharing limited bookie. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. You will get 7 days free trail with more features.